Dotnet Rocks episode 771 with guest Joel Semeniuk. Recorded live Friday, May 18th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell and we're here with Joel Semeniak coming up right after this. But first, I need to say hi to Richard and uh, what's up, man? Hey, not much. You know, daughter didn't pass her driver's test, so she's upset. Yeah, my stepdaughter didn't do it the first time either. There you go. It was a brief bout of tears, but she came back in a couple of weeks and nailed it. Yeah, yeah, it's not, that's not a bad thing to have a couple of goes at stuff. Yeah. Try and get it right. Hey, uh, I got an, a repeat for Better Know Framework, but it's so cool I thought I would revisit it again. So let's roll what? the music. Give me some music. All right, hit me. What do you got? Shamalama Ding Dong. Huh. This is the Expando object class. Expando. In .NET 4. And it represents an object whose members can be dynamically added and removed at runtime. So it's basically a base of a dynamic object. Huh. Yeah. Now, why do I want to do this? Well, you know, remember when the DLR was like a big thing and everybody yeah. was discovering Ruby and how dynamic objects were great because you could just you just pull members out of thin air, pull properties out of thin air. Yeah, just create things on the fly. Yeah, well, that's what you can do with an expando object. Part of system.dynamic then? System.dynamic.expando oh, nice. object. The yeah. DLR continues. It does. That's cool. Yeah. So, you know, um, every once in a while you see somebody making a blog post of some very cool implementation that used the expando object. So, you know, it's it's kind of fun to go looking to see what the people do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 750, which is the one we did at Prairie DevCon with Steve Rogalski talking about user stories. That was awesome. Yeah, I thought I really enjoyed it. And Mike Jones has this awesome comment. He says, Dear Carl and Richard, this is exactly what I needed and something I can use immediately. Agile trainers come in and teach us how to build a backlog, theories behind it, and how to move the cards across the board. The big problem we're left with is, what if this story slash epic is bigger than a bread box? And strategies to solve this aren't normally taught. The quick how-to during the discussion allowed me to put the 2D board to use. One question we always struggle with is research spikes. How to account for work and effort on things you don't know the answer to. One spike can lead to another and to another. Mm. That's the nature of research, I guess. These are the big problems, something that can't be done in one sprint. We might be researching what the product needs are. I'd love to hear strategies on this. There is no velocity. Time boxing could help. Part is probably complicated by the cart before the horse problem, building something before you understand it. What should story cards be? Hmm. I forwarded this show to my team only five minutes into listening to it. Thanks, <laughs> Mike Jones. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. It's like, obviously, we hit some buttons there right away. And, I, you know... I don't know that I could answer these questions particularly well, Mike, but I know Joel certainly can. So let's just make that part of the show. Absolutely. It's, a, it's some great questions and certainly an issue with uh, with dealing with uh, what I always called risk mitigation, because certainly a lot of the work I've done has been on the edge of technology and needs uh, to have risk mitigated. 
So a mug to you, sir. Uh, find .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like one, just write a comment on the show at .netrocks.com. And uh, before we introduce our guest, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just 29 bucks a month. And with that, let me introduce Joel. Joel Semeniuk is a, a veteran of .NET Rocks. He is a founder of Imaginet Resources Corporation, a Canadian-based Microsoft Gold partner. And currently, Joel is also serving as an executive vice president at Telerik in charge of the Agile Project Management Division. He's also a Microsoft Regional Director and an MVP uh, on ALM and has a degree in computer science. With over 18 years of experience, Joel specializes in helping organizations around the world realize their potential through maturing their software development and information technology practices. Joel is passionate about application lifecycle management tooling techniques and mindsets and regularly speaks at conferences around the world on a wide range of ALM topics. Joel is also the co-author of Managing Projects with Microsoft Visual Studio Team System, published by Microsoft Press, as well as dozens of other articles for popular trade magazines. Welcome back, Mr. Semenyuk. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. Lots lots, and lots to talk about these days. Yeah, no no rest at all. Should we tackle Mike Jones's question right off the bat? I mean, he really had two points there, and I know you certainly uh, deal with Agile all the time, Joel. The, the issue about decomposing big stories and also dealing with research spikes. Sure. I mean, these, um, it's, it's, it's funny that, um, the whole topic about decomposition is kind of coming back into light. It really hasn't had a strong focus in the agile community. We always talked about this nebulous thing called a backlog and just, right. just sticks, you know, stick stuff on the backlog. Um, but one of the things that I've been preaching about for the last, oh, probably a dozen years is that those things, um, that we stick on the, on the backlog are as valuable to us as source code. And we don't just, you know, structure source code willy nilly. We, mm -hmm. we think about them. We, we think about their structure. We think about how we we set up our classes, how we set up our our code modules. Uh, we take a lot of effort into figuring out how to decompose them so that it makes sense. And as I'm not a big proponent of you know going crazy and you know defining everything with UML, but we still have to take a lot of care in the stuff that goes onto our backlog because it's actually a representation of of customer value that we're trying to build. So now, I feel like you're you're almost talking about like this curation of the backlog that. Somebody's got to go in and study it and maybe apply an order to it. Like there's, there's a gestalt in reading the backlog. Well, it, there's that, but there's also um, a commitment to the team in, in common ways of representing what's on the backlog. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, about I don't know, six or seven years ago, I started introducing the concepts uh, kind of laid forth by feature-driven development as a pattern, a design pattern, if you will, for doing decomposition of feature backlog items. Uh, you know, you start off with these things called feature sets, you decompose them into uh, features, and then you can kind of de decompose those even further. Um, as we've seen 
in the industry, in the agile industry, we have these these things called user stories. And of course, we've talked about other kind of components of that, like epics um, and and scenarios and and you know how we can decompose those. But I I really one of the first things that I do when I work as a consultant, when I work with organizations and I, I put structure on their backlog, is we come up with a design pattern um, for that decomposition. Because what we found is that uh, especially you have a large team, you have many many different ways of doing decomposition. You end up having many different languages, if you will, with people trying to represent um, what's in this common backlog. So the first thing that we typically do is harmonize on that language. Are we using epics and we decompose those into stories? Do we have you know features and feature sets that we decompose into 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 stories as well? Um, one of the the things that I kind of like uh, using, kind of inspired from the uh, the BDD, the Behavior Driven Development Arena, is um, as kind of based on some of the high-level Gherkin representations and higher up, but it's a, a very structured way of representing features and stories and thus acceptance criteria, which can be um, used to generate your, your tests. Mm-hmm. So by coming up with that standard pattern that we can all agree upon, and I don't, I don't actually um, recommend that there's any one pattern that works, just a pattern is a good idea that you can evolve uh, based on your need uh, is is a great starting point. And I think from that, we can figure out how we can do decomposition more more meaningfully. One of the things that I tried to uh, not... To, to recommend against is to get into decomposition too quickly. A lot of people will jump into it and just decompose into the smallest, tiniest bits as, as quickly as humanly possible. And sometimes that's not a good idea and either. And there's a danger to too much granularity. Absolutely. Well, and what, so what's the logical line? Are you just trying to get something done in the sprint? Generally speaking, if it can fit in the sprint, it's a good it's a good size. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as we start uh, seeing that, oh, you know, this is too too much for a sprint, it's a good idea to start thinking about breaking it down into smaller com- uh, components. That's kind of the the rule of thumb that I like to represent is no 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 smaller than that, um, but also uh, no bigger either because they do have to fit in an implementation. Um, uh, you know, iteration. I, I always thought the word backlog was backwards. You know, it's a kind of a forelog, isn't it? I mean, because it's really just the, that collection of user stories that describe what you need. But why backlog? Isn't it like, isn't it like our, our to-do list, kind of? Sure. You can <laughs> stuff stuff you need to get done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's stuff that you, you, you're right, Carl. It's the stuff that's coming up, not the stuff that is gone by. That's just a, an example of how like the nomenclature of something can can be semi-descriptive. Yeah. Well, Joel, have you ever run across circumstances where you find pressure to ex- to increase the length of a sprint just to deal with that sort of stuff? What do you mean? Like going going from a two week sprint to a three week sprint? No, you know what? It's it's kind of uh, one of those cardinal rules that I try never to break. And if mm-hmm. we're trying to if we're if we're trying to increase the length of an iteration to fit a story in, we mm-hmm. should rethink the story. We should think about how we can make it a bit smaller to, to, to make it a bit more granular to put it in. I mean, every story, every feature that you can ever conceive, you can always mm-hmm. break down. I can't, I've never run into a situation that's like, oh, no, you know, we have to do, you know, our, our story is this big and, and that's it's, it's as much as we can do it. I'm like, baloney, we can always break it down into some smaller piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the key there is, is that we never want to break that, break that cadence, that cadence, that feedback cadence that tells us, that reconfirms that value is, is really, really quite important. Mm-hmm. So the longer that we go without that, 
that feedback, you know, the bigger the granularity, we're giving ourselves um, uh, the ability to, to, you know, once you do this once, well, you know, we did this once in the past, let's go to a three-week sprint again, let's go to a four-week sprint, you know, oh, this is really big, let's let's go to a five-week sprint, you know, when does it end? Um, and so by keeping us uh, having uh, a very fixed timeline, it really gets us to consider value. I'm running into that exactly right now with uh, my next release of Team Pulse. Uh, we're looking at our quote-unquote backlog, whatever that nebulous thing is, and we, we want to deliver on a fixed date. And we're really scrutinizing the value of each and every, va- and each and every story um, because um, that, that capacity that we have is fixed. Um, right. And and with that, it gets us to have a different perspective of the stuff that's on there. We really think about prioritization a bit more uh, when we have those fixed iterations. You know, uh, I put out the word on Twitter that I was talking to you, and Don Belcom came back right away and, and asked this question. Uh, how do you make Agile work on a mandatory fixed price bid without getting into the change request game, which mm. I, I bring that up now because it sort of fits into your whole point about we've got fixed dates, we've got fixed prices, you know, how do we get there? So, you know, I love that man. He he always asks the hardest questions first. Yeah. <laughs> um, so agile in traditional consulting is really, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, you have to work with the right customer with the right mindset. Um, but if you have the right customer with the right, right mindset, uh, it's possible. So um, we've, you know, I've done a lot of work in this area. I've done 15 years of consulting work, and I can clearly say that you can actually have a fixed bid, fixed price, agile-based customer if the customer is willing to work with you on the very the variability of what you're um, developing, right. knowing that that it's in everyone's best interest to produce the highest value pieces within that particular time frame. If the customer is now penalizing you on um, um, the the creation uh, or any change that has to be made, you know. So they accept. Oh yes, fixed bid uh, means fixed scope as well. Uh, if they're penalizing you on change, then the only thing that you have at your disposal is a change request. You have to yeah. track them, right? Uh, because you're you're breaking an assumption, and this is where the danger lies. And this is where you know you have to have quite a bit of trust. But that yeah. trust can be earned. I mean, I've worked with. Uh, I remember working with a, a big U.S. company uh, in the. In in, in on a in a big insurance uh, problem and it started off you know when we're doing that dance and we didn't quite trust one another to the point where you know the project manager uh, close to her fiscal budget would be calling up and said hey Joel I've got like a hundred grand to spend what's the best way that we you know what's what's the most value that we can we can we can make with this money I mean talk about a relationship she's come to realize that we're we're working to give her the most value that we can within her constraints um right She's looking good as a PM because her projects are coming on on time, on budget, and they're having happy customers because she knows that she's not going to track the scope, you know, every single scope change. She's going to realize that this is being customer-driven and, um, you know, we don't have to track every change. Now, if that trust wasn't there, then obviously I, as a consultant, have to track the, the, uh, the, the change requests and say, hey, this is the impact of making that decision. You want more and you're not willing to give up something else, well, guess what? Um, here's a change request. 
Um, it's it's a real tough one. Well, um, I have seen um, there's uh, in, in Quebec uh, there's been a bit of a movement in the government to to work uh, from an agile steering committee perspective, and they actually have agile consulting agreements out there that is a recognition of that very fact. Uh, so I see that as a huge amount of progress. Uh, especially in, in the government world, where you know, if that was in place, then we might have to track change, but we not ne- we're not necessarily having to get every aspect approved. Well, I, mean, I think you hit on the key point there, which is really that trust element, right? Everybody's actually making reasonable requests of everyone else. I, I, it drives me crazy when I'm dealing with a customer that wants fixed price and changes scope. Yeah, it's, it's impossible. There's three sides of that triangle, right? Time, yeah. uh, time, money, and, and and scope. You can only fix two, and and I'm totally happy to fix fix two of them. Um, and I'd much rather fix time and fix budget because guess what? My understanding of the scope is flawed. It's actually going to be wrong. Yeah. There's, there's so why would I ever write a contract that is based on something that's actually a guess and wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Be pre- if you're prepared to slip features, the funny thing is that this is what what Sanofsky's doing with Windows 8. We're gonna do. We're gonna get this done at a certain time, which obviously means he has a certain budget, and uh, he will slip features to get it out on time. But it's not even just slipping features; it's making sure that the most valuable ones are done right. Right. Um, and, and realizing that there's a difference in priority. It's like, you know what? These other ones are hitting the bottom because we, may, we might not need them as much. They, they might be a service pack thing. But these features, you know, making sure that I have, you know, in Sanofsky's world, you know, great power on experience. You know, the fact that he's actually cracking down on crapware with, uh, with the hardware vendors is awesome. I applaud that. You know, he's yeah. making that a high priority because that is the whole customer experience. So Sanofsky's saying, my line in the sand is my customer experience and I'll, I'll pick and choose my features to make sure that that initial experience is phenomenal. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who want me to tell you all about Team Pulse. Is customer feedback at the heart of your development process? Are you looking for an easy way to integrate that feedback into your Microsoft TFS projects? Well, Telerik offers a simple and cost-effective solution to this problem. It's called the Ideas and Feedback Portal and comes as an extension of Telerik's agile project management tool, TeamPulse. The Ideas and Feedback Portal helps teams engage with external stakeholders like users or clients by capturing their feedback in the form of ideas, bug reports, feature requests, and votes, and allowing for a virtually real-time collaboration with your development team. Feedback collected by the Ideas and Feedback Portal can easily be turned into requirements or bugs and synchronized with your TFS project for you and your team to work on. So from now until the end of June, Telerik offers a 10% discount for .NET Rocks listeners for any purchases of the Ideas and Feedback Portal. For more information, go to telerik.com slash DNR, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Um, let's grab the one other thing that Mike Jones talked about, which is research spikes. I always call this risk mitigation. Uh, how do you tackle it? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, it's it's probably the most important aspect of, of our project. I mean, the, the biggest aspect on an Agile team is learning. 
mm-hmm. um, when we when we embrace learning, we're we're, minimi- we're minimizing guessing, right? So uh, instead of guessing about which architectural pattern we should choose or which technology should we should choose, guess what? We should try them, measure them, right? This gives us actual data and actual knowledge that we can we can make decisions around. So spikes need to be part of whatever we do. But just like everything else, just like a feature, um, you know, it can go on forever. Yeah. Uh, I, I could start a research spike and go and spend three weeks to find, you know, what is the right data access technology for me and, you know, choose between the 17 that are out there. Um, or I can time box in. Now, so time boxing uh, is, a, is a real big importance for spikes. And it, it's even more than 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 sprint time boxing. It's actually, um, you know, how much time do I actually want to spend on this particular effort? At the end of that time, you sit back and you go to the team. This is what I've learned. This is what we still don't know. This is what we still know. Team, is this good enough? Right. And the team goes, you know what? I read this blog post that said this, this, and this. We can contribute a little bit more and we can make a call at that point. If the team sees that they need more, guess what? They'll institute another time box sprint. One of the best practices that I've seen is a technique called allocations. So in my in my sprint, I have an allocation and I might allocate uh, 80% of my sprint to be new features. Mm-hmm. I might allocate 10% of my sprint to be bug fixing, and I might uh, allocate 10% of my sprint to be spikes. And that will give me relatively the amount of time that I might want to spend on, on, on spiking in that particular sprint. And I might want to change those allocations where I, uh, depending on where I am at the release. So here's an example. Uh, at the very beginning of a release, I might actually spend 80% of my time spiking, but at the very end of my release, I want to do 0% of my spike uh, time spiking and maybe 80% of my time bug fixing. Sure. Right? So I yeah, yeah, that's going to slide, isn't it? I mean, at some point, you just got to stop researching. It doesn't mean anything anymore. That's exactly right. And are you generally talking about, when you talk about research spikes, are you really talking about um, practices for the project? Or is this, I mean, I've always been more concerned about mitigating risks about a particular API or, you know, we're trying to work with this device that we don't have a lot of experience with. That kind of thing has been the stuff that I really wanted to spike for research. Yeah, I mean, it could be any unknown. Typically, mm-hmm. it has to do with technology. But I the mean, whole app's an unknown. Yeah, I mean, here's here's an example. When we were reporting some of our uh, stuff to HTML5, we didn't know what the heck we're doing. So so guess what? Let's let's go and, and spend a little bit of time spiking to figure out what we don't know. Uh, because we didn't even know what we didn't know. Uh, yeah. We couldn't even we couldn't even produce an That's estimate. We're looking at a, we were looking at a feature, and we're trying to estimate that. And we're like, oh, I don't know. Like, who knows? I, I mean, I could tell you how much that would cost in Silverlight. No idea. Not a clue how much that would take us, uh, time would take us in, uh, in HTML5. So instead of guessing, what we decided to do is spend a little bit of time learning and, and spiking not only on the APIs, but the tool sets and the technology and some of the libraries that we wanted to use at the same time that would help us out. And that gave us at least an understanding of what we didn't know uh, and allowed us to understand what our risk was in each of the each of the areas. Now, I'm telling you right now that we're still learning uh, in the HTML5 front and our estimates are still quite a bit um, variable as a result of that. But every iteration, we're putting time into to know more. You know, that seems like a reflection of what I would do as a single programmer, not on a team anyway. If I'm tasked with a, a subject, let's, you know, writing a new kind of app for a new platform or something like that, I don't know what I don't know. So the very the very first thing that I'm going to do is 
just figure out enough so that I can estimate how much time it's going to take to do the project. That's just common sense. Yeah, and it totally is. In fact, so much of what Agile is is very common sense. I mean, if you're an individual uh, developer, you're probably going to act very much like an Agile team. So right. wh- why we have this concept of a spike is to initiate a conversation, yeah. right? Because we're a single organism now. We have to think, we have you know 10 people on a team that have to think and act like a single organism. So that the, the idea of allocations is a spike, and the spikes are just forcing us in that collective to have a conversation about what should we learn? What should we invest in as a team? What would make the most sense for us? As an individual, you can have all those conversations real time with yourself quite effectively. Uh, as a team, you actually have to institute some, some topic of conversation, something that's going to get us to collaborate. Now, although I, I feel like when you talk about the HTML5 thing, like that knowledge is going to come out naturally from a couple of sprints. You're going to find out your rate of development on features. The, those sorts of things fall out anyway. Does it really need a spike? Uh, you know what? In some cases, it, it there's just no way no way to know. I mean, we could just start you know start implementing and hope for the best. And some and by the way, some people do know that. But mm-hmm. you might want to even spike on. Well, hey, is there any library that would help me out doing these things? You know, now, or what prosecuting is, APIs is something I think makes a lot of sense in spikes to get somebody up to speed on. This will actually save us time in the next five. Uh, cycles is a is a great spend of time up front, or it might, it might be choosing your your control pack. You know, you mm-hmm. might want to uh, to take a look at a plethora of the different controls that are out there to find out which ones are going to to suit you. So you might want to spend you know four or five hours downloading them, playing with them, seeing how they install, seeing how they initiate, seeing how they behave um, to to come up with a, a short list, right? But it is a time and resource box effort because it is you can you can study libraries forever. Oh, totally. True. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes you may have to. <laughs> <laughs> because you never get one that works quite the way you want it to. Hey, Joel, is there like one thing every time you go into a site, uh, you're looking at a project that is just your, your, your tip of the radar that that will make this successful or that guarantees failure? Are there like red flags and green flags? There's actually... Um, one red and one green flag that I look for every single time. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the one that has come up over and over and over again, and it actually has to do with this exact conversation. It's whether or not the team is investing in learning and improvement. So I've seen so many teams focus on execution, and that's great. I mean, we're producing value for our customers, and that is essential. But true um, teams who really want to embrace agility, and, and, I, and I mean agility in, in, the, in the broadest sense, uh, are investing in their own learning um, and improvement. And that is as important as everything else. I've seen too many times that get pushed to the side because there's deadlines. We've got, to, you know, we've got to develop these features. We have no time for retrospectives. We have no time to talk about how we can do better. Or worse yet, they get together and they make a list of what they can do better, and then they don't do it. That one thing is my, is my litmus test. If they're doing it, there's hope. If they're not, I have to get them to do that first. Then there'll be hope. Um, otherwise, you're just going to get in. You're going to be so busy chopping the trees, you're not going to have any time to sharpen your axe. And right. if you're not sharpening your axe, you're not, going to get, you're not going to get any more improvements in how fast you can cut down that wood. Yeah, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. Well, and it, I also feel like it changes the the group of, that you're working with. 
You get a very different team when they know their cycles for improvement. Well, absolutely. And, but it's also a mindset shift from upper management too. Um, upper management has to, to respect that there needs to be a little bit of time invested in improvement. It's not, it's not something that the team should be doing on their off hours because um, guess what? I mean, this is just, you know, stopping to sharpen the ax is, is good for everybody. You know, in fact, we might even realize we don't even need an ax. We can use a chainsaw now. Well, you know, that's even better. If I've stopped chopping wood to figure out I can use a chainsaw, well, now I can really cut wood. <laughs> um, you know, and this is where companies that really understand that the elimination of waste, which is really how what we what we're why we're doing all of this stuff is to eliminate waste, is is critical to not just developer but to the business itself. And so this is where when it comes to agile adoption, you know, the second litmus test is you know how much um, understanding and sponsorship do they have from management? Is this just the team trying to be a better team, or is there some recognition that uh, that agile and some of the principles that you know I, I preach about around lean and and so forth is really a f- reflection of business need and business value more than just making teams and developers happy? Hey, uh, guess what time it is, Richard? It must be that happy time. Yeah, it feels like a good time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection. Joel, you know about the fan club? I don't. Yeah, so we started a .NET Rocks fan club, and basically we have, uh, I don't know, a few thousand members, and you it's free to join. Every show, Telerik gives away a Telerik Ultimate Collection, and we give away passes to conferences and things like that. And once a year, every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of hand-picked technology, and uh, it's going to be a, a great end-of-year gift for somebody. Call it a Christmas present. Yeah, it's a Christmas present for me anyway. Or a Hanukkah present. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever you want. That's right. So today's winner is Mark Boyer. Congratulations, Mark. Golf clap for you. What did Mark win? He won a Telerik Ultimate Collection. That's a $2,000 value. Actually, it's a $7,000 value if you add up the individual products from Telerik. But they sell it for a couple thousand dollars, and uh, it's basically everything Telerik does. Awesome. I think Team Pulse is in that bundle, isn't it, Joel? I believe it. I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Well, there you go. Mark Boyer, congratulations. And if you want to figure out how to join the fan club, go to .netrocks.com and click on the big get free stuff picture that's up in the upper right hand corner. Joel, you mentioned this just before the prize draw, the concept of lean. Can we define the difference between agile and lean? <laughs> that's an excellent um that's an excellent uh question so so let me just take a, a step back a little bit so lean was sparked for the same reasons that agile has been sparked mm-hmm. is to to figure out how we can be better at what we're doing we're failing we're, we're having you know poor quality issues we're not focusing on the right thing uh but lean predates agile um by about 50 plus years um so you know it goes back um way way back to about 1945-ish um and it was really kind of a set of principles initially just just like the agile manifesto it kind of emerged as a set of principles and and really some of the key values that it was focusing on uh, had to do with um waste believe it or not is to think about what we're doing to uh figure out how we can eliminate waste from what we're doing i mean that's one of the core premise uh, that 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 lean really kind of harps upon 
Um, there's actually seven principles of lean, which is eliminate waste, build quality in, create knowledge, defer commitment until you have the appropriate knowledge to make good decisions, deliver quickly, respect people, and optimize the whole. I mean, aren't those exactly what we're trying to talk about in Agile? Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I like to, to position uh, lean around is that lean, um, so agile is great. We love agile, has a whole bunch of set of practices, but sometimes the why isn't there. And to me, lean is why agile works, right? Because hmm. agile is actually a reflection of a lot of these principles. When we, when we implement agile practices, which, and there's so many of them, like, you know, user story mapping is one of those examples of agile practices that are coming uh, to the forefront, sprints yep. and iterations. These are all things that we do that we claim that they're agile. But why does this stuff work? Why does having a customer beside us work better? Why do we want to, you know, um, and make sure that we're focusing on um, building uh, uh, on working software than working documentation, and and the why is really embedded in what we see in Lean. So Lean is is very much like I said a core uh, set of principles and a whole bunch of practices that emanate from that. You know, here's an example. Uh, we're talking about spikes, so I'll, I'll I'll use this as a particular example. But one of the practices in Lean is uh, something called uh, set-based development. And set-based development is basically an acknowledgement that we don't know what the right answer is, right? So let's try uh, three different options at the same time. Let's not just try one and hope for the best. Let's actually try try using all of the APIs that we could use to see what would give us the, the right or the, all the different controls. And this might seem wasteful to a lot of people. It's like, well, why would we you know, invest in, in using three different controls to build the same thing? Why don't we just choose one? The reality is, is that if there's any opportunity for a, a, a discrete observation of waste, this is actually these controls perform 20% better than the other ones. Well, we've just learned a whole lot and we can throw you know halfway through we can throw away the other implementations so that's kind of what we might want to do in spikes but in lean this has been around for a long long time where we talk about here here's a method of doing set-based development another example of uh, what we might do in the lean space is something called rolling wave planning this has been around for 50 years basically it says i don't know um, what my plan is going to look like in six months. But I do know with pretty good certainty what my plan looks like in the next three or four weeks, right? And you, in, you, 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 work, into your, um, you work into your model continual planning. And again, this is not something that was invented by Agile. This, right. has been, you know, this has been around for 50 plus years in manufacturing, which we think is all about assembly lines and, and putting together pieces. How can that possibly do with software development the reality is is that there's a whole lot of that that we're already doing in in agile that reflects uh, some of the lean well if you think of what agile means is uh, reactive to change quickly so what it means is being informed making good decisions and then having the courage and you know this is where you get into what separates one team from another having the courage to say okay what we know has now changed we were wrong about this before this is now what we're following therefore these are the actions that we need to either stop doing or do now or change uh, because of that new information and absolutely so what what lean promotes is to try to make that very discreet um, to, to, to take away the guessing. So if we, if we have something to guess, you know, toss a coin. Why don't we try both sides of the coin first and let data, empirical data, yep. um, drive our decisions? 
So, you know, I, I, I actually spend more time today talking about lean than I do talking about agile. Mm. In fact, one of the, the things that I do with most organizations is I said, well, if you really want to adopt agile practices, you might want to start with lean or you might want to start with Kanban, which is a practice that uh, of lean. Uh, and Kanban is a technique that you can use that will help identify waste in your process, in your software development process. And then you can use that identification to pull in Agile practices that help resolve that waste. So one of the things that I've seen, um, you know, not all, all agile adoption pro- uh, processes go, go smoothly. And in fact, some of them can be very chaotic and we might want to you know, throw too many agile practices at a team too quickly. So one of the things that we, we like to do is allow the, mate- the team to pull in practices as they mature. Um, in, in, in order for some of these practices to really resonate with the team, they have to understand the need, right? The inception has to be there. They have to feel the pain that these practices solve, right? I can't just give it to them because they're going to like, well, this seems like a whole lot of extra work. In fact, it might even be considered wasteful to them before they truly understand the need or the waste that it solves. But but if you were to approach it from a lean perspective uh, and use tools like Kanban to say, here, here's a waste in our system. What can we use to solve that waste? Well, here are some agile practices that we can pull in at that time um, and increment our, our, uh, our adoption of agile as a result. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. When we're talking about waste, are we talking about wasted time primarily? It could be wasted time. It could be any form of waste. I mean, waste can take, you know, if you, waste can take many forms. I mean, think about this. I mean, are bugs wasteful? Well, hell yeah. I mean, yeah. if I have to take time to redo, you know, take time out of, a, 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 out of an iteration to redo work I've already done, well, that's wasteful. Customers don't care about that work. They care about you eliminating it so that you can give them more value. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying that Agile and Lean remove bugs, but it definitely helps us understand the impact of that form of waste. Well, here's another form of waste. Um, handoffs, right? So as I hand off work, there's a transition period there. Uh, it's wasteful when I, when I perform my handoffs. This is why in Lean, we try to promote this concept of a one-piece flow, which in, in, in the agile world is why we want to have the customers sitting next to us, right? So we mm-hmm. can minimize the handoff so, so I don't have to write a document as a business analyst and throw it over the fence to my developer who has to read the document. Other forms of waste, uh, writing things down. You lose 50% of all tacit knowledge when you write something down. Well, that seems pretty wasteful to me. Wait, um, what? what? You lose knowledge when you write it down? You lose it when you write it down because the meaning and the intent goes away, um, and that's okay. why we promote. Why, why I, gen- we promote- I generally remember things better when I write them down, so that that's where my brain is going here. Well, I don't, I don't understand. 
Well, think about the amount of information you can communicate if you're in person with a small team and a whiteboard. Yeah. Um, there's body language. There's emotion. There's 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 so much additional information that's being uh, presented to you in that form of collaboration. So you're talking about communication. You're talking about when I'm communicating to somebody else if I write it versus if I speak it in person. Right, but a lot of organizations will use the document as the form of flow. Right. They're saying, write down your requirements, and we'll use this as a form of communication. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, where that's again, where I'm getting at. Documentations aren't, aren't bad, but we'd much rather have working software than, than, than documentation. So what is documentation truly trying to solve? Well, we have to document stuff. That's not going to go away, but we shouldn't use it for communication. We should you know, work as humans do because building software is a human process. Um, and communicate with the highest bandwidth um, you know available to us yeah it's funny it's it's kind of if you think about it it's kind of why people go to conferences rather than just read well i mean some people get a lot of really great nuggets um from from reading i mean i'm one of those guys i'm one of those guys who can read and get a whole lot from that um but that just um makes conferences better, right? Yeah. So when I'm ready, when I when I truly understand all these opportunities, I'm not in the beginning modes of mer- uh, learning, I'm in the middle, and that extra collaboration with experts that I get to meet with in the field really kind of reinforce what I've just kind of picked up on right. and, and kind of drive that fo- forward, right? I guess it also, uh, you know, not to derail the conversation here, but it also depends on the the ability of the person writing the document to write something that is well-written and interesting to read. Obviously, if it's, it's bone dry, your, your mind's going to wander. Well, that and the consumption of it. I mean, uh, I don't know how many really long emails you guys get a day. But one of the first things that I do is I flag it going, I don't have time to read that right now. Right. I'll, get back yeah. to, I'll get back to that a little later. That yeah. seems pretty, pretty in-depth, right? So what happens is that later sometimes doesn't come when you want it to. Um, and that profound email that that person spent writing uh, or that document that they put a lot of effort and love into you gets wasted because no one's consuming it. Right. Um, and, you know, it could be well-written, just that, I've got 60 emails, you know, that are marked as urgent that I need to get to, and all of them have one-line sentences in them. I'll probably get to those first versus this one where I really need to dedicate time to truly go through this and get into the mindset. It's true about web documents, too. I mean, you read something on the web, and there's so much information there, you bookmark it instead of just reading it because it's going to take time. In fact, that's probably one of the, the biggest problems that websites have is that you know, inviting people to get the information to to spend the time to get what they need so that they can figure out what the heck this website does. Yeah, it's 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 sad what's happening to our attention span, isn't it? As, it really as is. A, yeah, yeah. It's just I'm sorry. Did you say something? <laughs> I find myself, you know, really trying to take the effort now to reclaim my attention span and yeah. not have Twitter running in the background and yeah. and not have email running or at least turn off all notifications, turn my phone to pull versus push email. Right. You know, little things like that because I'm a I'm a I'm a junkie when it comes to this stuff. I mean, if I hear a, a beep or a twing or a, or anything, I'm running over to this like, what was that? What you know, news that I miss now? Yep. Yeah, so, I've separated on machines. The dev machine has none of that. Yep. The the there's a communication machine and when you blank that screen out, you're just not bothered anymore. Yep. Yeah. And all sounds suppressed. No noise, please. Exactly. Yeah. Uh sure. Kanban. 
So, and I'm I'm coming at Kanban now from the perspective of mitigating waste, because to me, the power of Kanban is cutting down on the amount of time people spend reporting on progress. Am I crazy? Um, it, it's one aspect of that for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kanban, it, you know, solves a, a bunch of problems very elegantly in a very, very simple way. I mean, first of all, it's very simple for us to understand things when we see them visually. So right. instead of having right. them in a grid, we now see them in a board. Now we've always had boards. A lot of us have had agile boards for a very long time. So what's the difference? A Kanban board places emphasis on work in progress, meaning that it doesn't like to have a lot of work in progress. So you end up having these limits for this this board that visualizes work. So how much stuff is in development right now? How much stuff is in testing? How much stuff is waiting to be tested, but we have a, you know, but we have a blocker there because we don't have enough testers, you know? So it helps us identify um, waste in our system by first of all allowing us to visualize it we can glance at a board and know exactly where the waste is immediately uh, by also making sure that we have um, limits to the queues so for example if we had a limit to we can only have two stories in testing right Um, and all of a sudden we have three stories that get done development and they're waiting to go in testing well what does that tell us that means we have a we're having a collision where something has to wait to get into testing Right? That might tell us that we have too many developers uh, and not enough testers. Uh, it might tell us that we don't have a good uh, automated testing strategy. It could tell us a whole bunch of things. And all it does is it raises a flag for you to look at. It says, hey, look at me. There's a problem over here. And then as a team, you can say, hmm, not really a problem. Uh, or, hmm, that is really a problem. We should address it using some mechanism. Right? Um, and what it and the, the, the third thing that Kanban really gives you is the focus on getting things to done. Uh, one of the, the common things that I see a lot of developers do at the very beginning of a sprint, you know, you got five developers and you're all anxious to start working on some new stuff. What do we do? Each developer goes and grabs five different stories, right? And starts working on them in parallel. And then they're like, oh, Monday's looking good. You know, let's pretend it's a five-day sprint. Tuesday's looking good. Wednesday, you know, nothing, no problems. Thursday comes along. Friday comes along. Four of the developers aren't going to get their story done. One developer can get their story done. That means we've got mm-hmm. one thing done at the end of the sprint. Right. Well, we don't care. We don't care about the stuff that's not done. We care about the stuff that's done. So maybe what we should have done is had a work in progress limit of three for 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 development stories, and that would have forced the developers to to swarm a little bit to try to get more out the door. Versus in progress, because we value done. So what Kanban allows us to do is value done, is to value Mm. making sure that things are efficiently flowing through the pipeline uh, with the minimal amount of effort. Yeah. Well, I, I just like the visualization aspect of it that, you know, people see it and immediately see the focus on the problem. The problem glows because it's just that concentration of post-its in a, in a particular corner that just gives away that's is where the issue lies you want to hear a funny or- story is my my wife is a staples junkie she she is addicted to going to the office supply store which is staples in this part of the world and uh when she she was at a a conference at, with me and happened we happened to be talking about kanban and and then looked it up and saw it and she's like that's what i need to run my house <laughs> you know, like putting up all all the chores that everybody has to do to to meet the goal, the end goals for a particular th- like that's exactly what she needs. She's and, and now she can't stop talking about. I'm going to get a kanban board. I'm going to get a kanban board. 
Well, and the irony is, is that there's a lot of that going on. If you if you're to do a, a home Kanban or a personal Kanban, people are actually looking towards us for that attention deficit disorder as well. Yeah, I mean, right. I I have a personal Kanban as well. It says, you know what, Joel, you can really only do two things at once. I can switch yeah. between two things. Uh, once they're three, four, five, I am. I am a scatterbrain. I'm running all over the place and I get none done. Yeah. Right. So you're seeing that. And what's really cool about Kanban is you can apply it to just about anything. Well, and it my, comes from manufacturing anyway. Exactly. I mean, but you can apply it to whatever you're doing today. If you're doing Scrum today, you can still use Kanban on top of Scrum. Mm-hmm. If you're doing traditional waterfall, uh, you can still put Kanban on top of the traditional waterfall, um, you know, to, to help you visualize this uh, and, and look at the flow of your work. If you're a real estate agent and you're trying to get customers from, you know, from the, um, from the potential buyer f- um, phase to the buyer phase, well, you can use a Kanban to represent that. Um, there's, there's so many, so many possible uses of it. That's cool. You know, it's always fun to talk to you, Joel. You always have good stuff to think about. And, and it all comes always, I'm, I always just seem to listen to you and nod my head. And that makes total sense to me. Like that's common sense, you know? So it's, it's all just good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it all comes from Everest. <laughs> <laughs> you take one hike up a hill. Well, yeah. no, it's it's not just the hike. It's the it's the it's the it's the two weeks of no email and good conversation and no distractions, and you, yeah. you end up having these profound thoughts that are that feed you for a year, and then you have to go back and mm-hmm. turn all that stuff off again so you can rethink about this stuff. That's awesome. You guys going back? October. Oh, yeah, October time frame. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go, but I know Joel's going. So I'm going absolutely. Are you going to base camp or higher? We're not. We're not going to base camp. We're going to summit a little peak there called Goiko. Um, it's just kind of off to the east of base camp. Um, it's about the same height as base camp. It's just uh, when you get to base camp, it's kind of a little anticlimactic. You're right. Kind of. You, kind you want, of. Well, kind of, yeah. It's, you know, all of right. a sudden, you're like, okay, I didn't summit a damn thing. I'm looking no. you know, up yeah. on these mountains going, well, I'm at the base of something, not at the summit of anything. And you feel like uh, you just climbed, and you have just climbed a huge, vast spans. Yeah, well, the, the, the base camp at Everest is almost the same height as the top of Kilimanjaro in Africa. Yeah, right. So here you are, what is the top of the mountain in Africa at the bottom of the mountain in the it's Himalayas. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's nutty. So, you know, I said to my, you know, to our good friend, Mr. Forte, hey, I actually want to st- stand on something and look around me and feel like I'm higher than something. Yeah. And so a few years ago, he actually um, summoned uh, Goiko um, with his wife. And uh, it was uh, pretty, he, he, took obviously a panoramic video of it and was it was definitely the type of summit that i want to do so we're going to go and try to do that this year awesome that's great well let us know talk to us next year and we'll, absolutely yeah all right joel thanks a lot and we'll see thanks you next me. time on dotnet rocks thanks for listening and remember pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online pluralsight.com .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Quap Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, 
and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft Development Technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. Episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website feeds. Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. The band by the FCC. <laughs>